Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. The book of Ecclesiastes has 12 chapters. The author is traditionally Solomon. You can compare um, Ecclesiastes 1 1, 1 16, 2 9, and 2 4 through 10 to 1 Kings 4, 29 through 34, and 10, 21 through 27. Solomon ruled over the United Kingdom of Israel from 970 to 940 BC. He probably writes this book near the end of his life as a reflection on what he's learned. The book falls in a category of scripture called wisdom literature. He's sharing his wisdom. We remember that Solomon was the king who, when God says, what may I give you? He says wisdom. So it makes sense that he would write about wisdom. The teacher or preacher as the word is sometimes translated, is a word used for a speaker or assemblyman, um, ecclesiastes, so this literally means teacher. Ecclesia is the Greek word for a gathering or an assembly, a group of people who are gathered for a purpose. And ecclesia is the word that is translated church in the New Testament. In our case, it is a group of people gathered for a purpose, gathered around the mission and ministry of Jesus Christ. But an ecclesia, um, Ecclesiastes, is a one who speaks or leads an assembly or gathering. And so this gathering has happened to talk about wisdom and its limits. Um, he addresses prosperous people who think that material possessions are going to bring them some lasting satisfaction. And he says, nothing under the sun is permanent. Your possessions and your money are not permanent, and they're not going to bring you that satisfaction. This book exists as a counterbalance to the idea that prosperity comes as a reward for righteousness always, and that an absence of prosperity is always a punishment for an absence of righteousness. The key verse ends up being chapter 9, verse 11b, time and chance happen to them all. There is an element of time and chance that impacts Um, some who are righteous end up not prospering in this life, and some who are not righteous prosper in this life. But generally speaking, wisdom and obedience to the principles of God lead to a better life than one without. However, there is an element of chance. There's also the presence of evil and the free will choices of others that impact us. The book is written in a meditative journaling style. It meanders from one topic to another. So this was not a well-edited intentional treatise on the topic. These are his thoughts. The phrases vanity and a chasing after the wind occur often in the first six chapters of the book. And the question, who knows, appears often in the second half. So it's as though maybe it was written at two different times. At one time, he has vanity and all this is chasing after the wind high on his mind. And then later, he keeps asking himself the question, who knows? Who knows what happens? Phrases like under the sun, on earth, and under the sky underscore um, the author's conviction 
that maybe what we know, maybe what we experience in this life is not all there is. Um, It's really kind of an assertion for an afterlife. Um, And what happens there may be very different from what happens here. Uh, More than likely, because we know if God is just, that God eventually balances the scales. And apparently that must happen after the end of this life for some people. He's really the first of the Old Testament writers to suggest that God's judgment might take place somewhere outside of our human experience now. And we see that in 317, 812, and 1214. Let's jump into chapter 1. Verse 2, the word vanity literally means a vapor or a puff of air, a breath. Um, it's the same word used in Isaiah fifty-seven thirteen, where it is translated breath. All is transitory and unreliable. The theme here, everything's vanity. Everything passes, everything changes. Sometimes vanity has a negative connotation with overtones of folly, and we see that in chapter 4, verse 4, and chapter 5, verse 10. In verse 3, he asks the question, what permanent gain comes from all the hard work that we do? And he begins to answer with illustrations from both nature and human history, and he does this in verses 4 through 11. In verse 8, he talks about entertainment, uh, people who are always seeing, always hearing, and it's never enough. And in verse 9, there's nothing new under the sun. We think something is novel because it's the first time we've seen it or noticed it, but there's really not anything new. Chapter 2 contrasts the futility of seeking wisdom with the futility of self-indulgence. So the futility of seeking wisdom comes to us in chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, and the futility of self-indulgence is seen in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if we get frustrated with trying to live wisely, we often swing the pendulum to the far end of the other side, which is self-indulgence. In verse 18, the more we know and understand, the more we notice the things that need to be fixed and all the ways that we don't live up to the standard. More wisdom shows how little of it there is in the world. Verse 9, they want to become great. You become great in your own eyes and in the eyes of the world. And Solomon has said, I've done this and it did me no good. Neither of these, um, focusing entirely on wisdom or living a life of self-indulgence, can bring you a feeling of lasting satisfaction. Um, Both reason and experience have left him empty. In verses 12 through 26, wisdom and folly are talked about. Wisdom is better, um, but death comes to both the wise and the fool. Chapter 1, verse 3, and chapter 2, verse 22 mirror each other. They are a repetition. Repetition is often good. They remind us of all the ways that the things discussed bring us back to the main theme. Verses 24 through 26, we find balance. Don't work and think you can never relax and that you'll enjoy everything later, so I'm just going to work, 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 and I'll be happy later because you'll work yourself to death and won't get to enjoy it. And don't just indulge and never work. You can't just always party. Do something serious with your life. Do something that matters. Um, The summary here is that without God, everything is meaning. Reason is meaningless and experience is meaningless if it's not connected to God. Only with God can we ultimately fill that void that is present in our lives. 
Ecclesiastes 3 verses 1 through 8 are the really famous passage about time. Everything has its time. Um, but mortals are not privy to when the time is. We don't always know when the time and season changes. The thought continues in verses 9 through 15 that pleasure is not anti-God. It just can't be all that there is. God has given us a sense of the past and a sense of the future that we're hoping for. We can remember and learn from the past, and we can anticipate doing better in the future and all that is to come there. But ultimately, we're we are not God. We don't know everything. In verses 16 through 22, we see that God is going to ultimately be the judge. It looks like humans and animals both end up the same way. We just go back to dust. But who knows what may come after the death here. Humans are different from the rest of created beings. We've been made in God's images. image. We seem to... Um, have this expectation that we connect with God on a different level than the way um, the rest of the world does, and that humans are are not to live like uncivilized animals. And animals are perhaps just people, just creations that are not capable of interacting with God on the same level that we are because we were created differently. Verse 21 is the very first trace of an afterlife overtone in the entire Old Testament. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, the world is full of pain and suffering. In verses 4 through 6, we see that working to excess is counterproductive, but it's also foolish to refuse to work because you'll starve to death, and where's the good in that? Verses 5 and 6 are a traditional proverb that we're going to see some of those sprinkled in. Verses 7 through 12 have several good quotes within them. Two are better than one, for if they fall, one will lift the other up, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Um, three cords last longer, will carry more, will endure more than a cord of two. Um, a miser would be better off working to develop close friendships, which are more rewarding, more um, durable, and more reliable than wealth. In verses 13 through 16, um, even remarkable human achievement fades and doesn't have lasting impact. Think about all the famous people, all of the people who've made really interesting contributions to human history, who were really powerful. They're just as dead as everybody else, and we often forget their names in a short length of time. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, um, the writing changes from first person, I, to third person, um, you, from narrative and to imperative as well. And in verses 1 through 7, we have two sets of commands followed by a proverbial saying. So verses 1 and 2 are the command in verse 3, the saying. Verses 4 through 6 are the command in verse 7 is the proverb. In verses 8 and 9, we have a, a difficult couple of verses to really tease out. We're Talking about leadership, um, bureaucracy often misses the goal of the mission. Once we get too heavy, we can get mired down in the details with dotting the I's and crossing the T's and forget the whole purpose. And the further away you are from the front line of the ministry, of the work, the the harder it is to see if injustice is happening, if the mission, if the right thing is not actually happening. 
In verse 9, a better translation of that last phrase might be, the profit of the land is shared by them all, um, suggesting that officials at every level are taking a little piece of what is yielded, and that results in the farmer getting very little of what he's actually labored for. In verses 10 through 20, talks about the vanity of the effort that we expend to, to gain great wealth. Chapter 6, the themes of the first half of the book all get mentioned again. Compare 6-7 to 1-7 and 5-10. Compare 6-8 to 2-13-16. Compare 6-9 to 2-14. Compare 6-10 to 1-9-11. We're going to review them all at the end of the first half of the book. In verse 6, do not all go to one place. It means death. Not heaven. We're not talking about a universalist approach to getting to heaven. He's just saying everybody dies. There. Um, verse 12, these two questions actually introduce the theme that will dominate the second half of the book. In chapter 2, verse 3, the teacher was still hoping to, to discover what good all of our hard work does. Now, he has arrived at the conclusion that we just can't know it for sure. With chapter seven, we start the second half of the book where who knows is going to be the question because he's already reached the conclusion that we can't know. So now he's reflecting on what I observe and what that does to change how we live. In verses one through 14 of chapter seven, we have a series of proverbial sayings with a concluding statement. Um, Five sayings make the point that the endings have more to teach us than the beginnings. Um, In verse 2, funerals teach us more about how to live than a party celebrating the birth of a new baby because we can look at how the person actually lived their lives, things we want to emulate and things we want to avoid. In verse 7, oppression done by the wise actually turns them into fools. This is not talking about oppression done to the wise, but when a wise person actually oppresses others. And verse 14, the nature of life can often just leave us confused. Verses 15 through 18, we cannot control God. We can't manipulate God with our behavior. We have no choice no choice but to rely on the grace of God. Verse 18, get wisdom, but don't think yourself truly wise. There's always more that you need to learn, more ways you need to grow. We all still have some foolishness in us. Better to learn all we can, but don't ever think you've learned all you can. Verse 20 sounds a lot to me like Romans 3, 23. Verse 21, don't let others what others say about you get you down. Um, remember that you've said things about other people as well. Verses 23 through 29, um, the word that is translated some in verse 25 and 27 is translated scheme in verse 29. That's the same word all three times. Scheme would really be a better translation in all three places. Um, scheme can mean both an overall plan as well as a devious plan. So in verse 25 and 27, is talking about the overall plan. And in verse 29, talking about a little devious part of that. Verse 26, by the way, is not denigrating all women. 
He's talking about a trapping woman. A woman who traps is the woman folly that he talked about in Proverbs 9, verses 13 through 18. In chapter 8, we have a a discussion of the limited nature of human wisdom. Um, We can't know everything. Verses 1 through 9 Wisdom can help us negotiate the perils of life, but it's not a guarantee that we'll never have any perils or that nothing bad will ever happen to us. And in verses 10 through 15, we see a conflict that exists between what the author has experienced and what he wants to believe. Um, He wants to believe that wisdom makes life go well, and yet he sees that it doesn't always. In verses 16 and 17, We just have to acknowledge that we can't always know what God is doing and how God is working. We can't know the mind of God. Chapter 9, all living creatures eventually die, and there doesn't seem to be a difference between what happens to the good people and the bad people. They all die. But for those who believe in retributive justice, um, that's the belief that God doles out to people what they have coming. For them not to get it is an evil that looks evil. They should get what they have coming, and they have some punishment coming. Some retribution should be um, up for them, and they don't seem to be getting it. The belief at the time was that life ended with death, that there wasn't an afterlife. If we look in verses 3 through 6 of this chapter, chapter 9, in chapter 3, verse 20, and again in chapter 10, uh, verse 10 of this, um, we see the word sheol used in verse 10, And Sheol is another name for the grave, for the the abode of the dead. It's not a name for hell. It's just the place where the dead go. Take a look also at Job chapter 7, verses 7 through 10. Sheol is the place of silence and forgetfulness. Everybody goes into the great silence, into forgetfulness when they pass from this life. Um, That's not our belief. We believe in a heaven and hell. But this was the belief of the ancient people at the time. Generally, righteous living makes for a better life. Evil leads to a bad end, but nothing is a guarantee um, because there's an element of chance. Verse 11, time and chance happen to all of them. There's an element of unpredictability. Chapter 9, verse 13 through chapter 10, verse 20, which is the whole chapter of verse of chapter 10, makes a section. So this is a new section. The strengths given to us in verses 13 through 18a of 9, and then there are weaknesses given to us in 918b through 10.7 are discussed here. Um, And then we have, those are followed by some more proverbial sayings that are reminiscent of the book of Proverbs. Wisdom has its advantages, but even a wise person is forgotten. Verse 16, great wisdom can be overlooked if it's coming from an unpalatable source. We often miss great wisdom because it comes from a poor person. On the other hand, a little bit of folly can undo a whole lot of wisdom. Um, 10.8a resembles Proverbs 26.27. The first half of verse 9 is very close to Proverbs 26.27b. Chapter 10, verse 10, like a sharp edge on a blade, wisdom reduces the effort that is needed to cut through a problem or a solution. A sharp edge makes cutting easier. Wisdom makes cutting through problems easier. Um, And in chapter 10, verse 11, it says to us that timing matters. Verse 18, failure to address issues um, 
or do do regular maintenance to our relationships or our houses will result in damage. Love leaks out. We have to keep loving people to keep that relationship strong. And if we don't repair our house and take care of it, it'll fall apart and so will relationships. Chapter 10, verse 20, be careful who overhears you. Um, Some people are listening with bad intentions or won't understand what they're hearing and will come to a bad conclusion. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 6 says to send your bread out on the water. After many days, you'll get it back. It's a principle we see in Scripture of reaping and sowing. It's not a guarantee, but it is a principle. If you are nice to people, they tend to be nice to you. If you help others, then someone's more likely to help you. Um, the same thing here is send out good, good thoughts, good deeds, and see if you don't get some of them back. The phrase, do not know, occurs four times here in six verses. It underscores the lack of a guarantee. Verses 7 through 10, the brevity of life encourages us to enjoy it to the fullest, but don't forget that you will be responsible for those choices that you make. Um, And verse 10 tells us that anxiety and worry are just frankly a waste of time. In the final chapter, chapter 12, we're urged to be right with God before we get old, um, to not think that we can live a hedonistic life and come to God late in those days. God actually brings more enjoyment and more purpose to that life. Enjoy life, but don't forget there is a God. Don't act like there's not one. There's a series of poetic metaphors used here to describe the physical decline that comes with age. Scholars disagree about the exact nature and meaning of this imagery, but it certainly does talk about the decay and decline that comes as we get older. Verse 6 is talking about death, and verse 7 talks about us decaying after we die. Verses 9 through 13 are actually the epilogue of the book. The teacher's career is summarized by a disciple or an editor, so later... Or after the teacher's death, someone comes back and sums it all up and gives us a conclusion. Some scholars think the epilogue actually starts with verse 8, with the repeating of the phrase, vanity of vanities. Um, others feel like it ends the chapter before. Um, it ends the section earlier. I happen to agree with those scholars. It feels like the original author or teacher or preacher, the ecclesiastic, um, actually begins the book with vanity of vanities and then ends with vanity of vanities. And then the epilogue is written by an editor later. In verse 11, these sayings are called goads. Goads um, were a stick with a sharp point on it that were used to herd cattle or oxen when they were plowing to keep them going straight. So goads are sticks or that keep us on the straight and narrow. We see these in Acts chapter 9, verse 5, when Paul t- when Jesus told Paul, that he was only experiencing pain because he's kicking against the goads. Like, you're working awfully hard, and isn't it very painful to keep resisting me? Um, Resisting wisdom is like kicking against the goads, experiencing unnecessary pain in life. And this disciple says that there are lots of books on Proverbs and wisdom, but what you have here 
is enough. Don't just study wisdom. Don't just gather knowledge and think it's wisdom. You have to apply it. You have to live it. And there's enough here to give you a good life. And that is the reflections uh, probably of Solomon upon life and the gathering of wisdom and how it makes life better, but is not a guarantee. Thank you.